Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, of the sons of Peath-Moab, Eliahonai, and the, and the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men, of the sons of Adin, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him fifty men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshahiah, the son of Athaliah, with him seventy men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him eighty men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him two hundred eighteen men. Of the sons of Bani, Shelomith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, their names being Eliphelet, Jeuel, and Shemaiah and with them sixty men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them seventy men. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You for Your church gathered this morning. I thank You for the beginning that You, Your Holy Spirit has made here. And God, I pray that through the preaching of the Word today, we would see Your truth and apply that truth more closely in our lives. We want to be more like You. We want to be closer to You. We want to be more loving. We want to be more obedient. And so help us, even as we begin today, to draw together, to be Your body in this place. And God, I pray that every word I speak would glorify You, and that, God, Your Word would speak much louder than my voice. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, I left when I saw the name of the, the title in one of the commentaries I used for this chapter. The title of the chapter was, More Names, with an exclamation point. And that's how some of us feel when we see these lists of names, whether it's a list of families returning to Judah or a list of begats. 
For, the, for those of you who have read through the Bible, have you ever been tempted to skip over these sections? All those hard to pronounce names from a language that we don't really understand. I'll be honest with you, preachers are tempted to skip over them too. And so why don't we skip over them? I'm sure nobody here would have faulted me. This is the first time you've heard me preach. I could have started over in verse 15 and just skipped this one. But I'll give you two reasons. Number one, because this is Scripture. When 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed out, that includes Ezra chapter 8, verses 1-14. through 14. It includes Genesis 5, 9, and 11. It includes Exodus 6. It includes Matthew 1. And it includes Luke chapter 3. And in the case of today's passage, there is instruction there beyond the genealogical interest. Although there is much there if you dive deeply enough. The second reason I preach on this passage today is because each one of these names represents an individual testimony. And God is glorified. I intend to remind you every time we encounter a list like this in Scripture, particularly a list of the faithful, that God is not a statistician. He is not glorified simply by the bottom line. God is a particular God. He elects people particularly to Himself. He doesn't look down whether you are a follower or not and see anyone as another one. One of a number. The God of the universe, the God who has created literally billions of people, trillions of animals, knows each one of His creation individually. And we see that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and following, when Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And so when Ezra in His chronicle lists these faithful souls. When the Spirit has led Him to do so, we should not be surprised. Because there is another book, a heavenly book, that lists this exact same thing before God. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus says, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Philippians 4.3 Paul instructs the church, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Revelation 3.5 The promise of Jesus is to the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And then finally in Revelation 13, beginning in verse 7, And authority was given to the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. 
and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There is a book that sits before our Father in heaven and in it from the beginning before the foundation of the world His elect are written. We saw in the previous chapter, and you can go back if you haven't read Ezra in a while, I encourage you to go back and read chapter 7. We saw Ezra's praise of God moving the heart of the king of Persia in in chapter 7, verse 27. And here in 8, 1-14, we see God doing exactly the same thing in the hearts of of these around 1,500 men and their families. And we know that it is the Spirit of God moving these individuals, these families, into obedience. Because these families have at this point lived in exile in Babylon, not 70 years, but 150 years. The first returnees returned in 537 B.C. They rebuilt the temple over the next 20 years, dedicating it in 516 B.C. All that was told to us in the first six chapters of Ezra, who was not even born when all that occurred. This return, Ezra's return, occurred in 458 B.C. Eighty years after the first Jews had returned from captivity. These were the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren, great-nephews and great-great-nephews of men who had declined or refused to return to Judah with Zerubbabel in 537, 80 years before. Their families had decided they would rather stay in Babylon than to return from the exile like God was calling them. Let's put it in perspective. How many here know where your family was living in 1870? That was 150 years ago. If you do know, how many of you longed to return to that homeland wherever it was? You've made your lives here. And what if you knew that that homeland was little more than a ruin, a shadow of its former glory? There was nothing beautiful to bring these families to Jerusalem. There was only obedience. When Zerubbabel returned in 537 B.C., 80 years before this, we see that not even all the priests of the temple returned. We know that because there are still some left in Babylon for Ezra's return. Descendants of Aaron who refused to return and work in the temple. We're not told what their families have been doing for six generations in Babylon. But the one thing you can be sure of is they were not offering sacrifices to God. It wasn't doing their appointed job before God in His temple. 
Matthew Henry, the great commentator, puts it well after referencing Isaiah 52, verses 1 and 2. The passage says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Matthew Henry's commentary is, I wonder how how any of them could read that chapter and yet stay behind. But multitudes did. They loved their ease better than their religion. Thought themselves well off where they were and either believed not that Jerusalem would better their condition or durst not go thither through any difficulties. We're guilty of that, aren't we? We look at what we have around us and we say, we don't want to risk this. I don't want to risk my job. I don't want to risk my situation. I don't want to live in obedience to God. I don't want to go where He's called me. I don't want to do something new because I'm comfortable here. And that was the situation that kept these families 80 years in captivity when they didn't have to be there. These families didn't even return in 516 B.C. After the temple had been rebuilt, after the sacrifices had begun again, after the festivals were being celebrated again, they had another life. They had a different future in mind for themselves. This return is about 60 years after the temple was rebuilt. But in the midst of their plans, in the middle of their intentions for their lives and the lives of their children, God moved in their hearts. In the last chapter, we had Ezra's testimony about his concern for the teaching of the law back in Jerusalem and how God moved the heart of the king to allow him and this group to return. But we don't know the motivations and the means that God used to move the hearts of these families listed. We can be fairly sure He used the same means He uses today to guide our lives. Some people may have been grieved over the state of the temple and the teaching from it, much like Ezra. And they felt that pulling of the Spirit in their heart to draw them back out of this captivity they had been carried to. Because God brings like-minded people together with purposes exactly like this. I believe that each one of you here today is a testimony to that. When we see people coming together independently at just the right time to plant a church, we know that it is the Spirit's leading. Sometimes we may even feel in those situations like we're alone, even abandoned when we're doing God's work, like Elijah who fled in terror immediately after God's victory on the top of Mount Carmel. When he finally stopped running and started hiding, he poured out his complaint to God, amounting to, 
I am the only faithful one. In 1 Kings 19.14 though, God says to him, Well, this is, what, um, this is actually what Elijah says. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. But God sent him right back to his ministry and told him, I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Sometimes you think you're alone and you find out God has a multitude, that God has a remnant that he is bringing together in his own time for his own purposes. The subtext there, there are seven thousand faithful people who are gods who haven't bowed to Baal. I don't know any servant of God who hasn't felt alone or under siege at times. Not just preachers or teachers, but anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 14 say, Indeed, all who desire to live godly live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. In other words, Timothy, you're going to have persecution. You're going to feel alone. You're going to have people oppose you. But you keep on doing what God has called you to do. In spite of the opposition. Now in addition to those who may have shared Ezra's heart for God and his heart for God's law, others may have been led back to Judah for a completely different reason. God's providential hand. What the world might call circumstance or coincidence. Yet we know that God orders things to bring us to a right and a glorifying relationship to Him. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God will use means both pleasant to us and unpleasant to us to break us away from the sin we may have allowed to captivate us. For these men in Ezra's time, it was long since time that they should return to the land of promise from the exile. Rather than proving God's goodness, their families had for generations been captivated by the things of this world. But something broke them away from that. God can use business failures to His glory. God can use house fires to His glory. God can use tropical storms and power outages to His 
glory. We know beyond any doubt that the same hand of providence is the same loving hand of our Father if we are in Christ. That same hand that disciplines us is the same hand that gives us every good thing and every perfect gift. Hebrews 12.7 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. It's both amazing and dangerous how easily we can get used to disobedience. How we can be lured by the temptations of this world. How easily we can justify our own sin to ourselves. How we can mistake the reasons we had for not obeying God and turn them into something that sounds good enough for us to salve our own guilt. The warning of Paul, should I pray, ring loudly in all our hearts. From Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 and following, where he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let it be our commitment before God to pray for each other that we should be wise in our lives, following Christ until the day we are finally glorified before our Heavenly Father. And I'd like to make one final note here. Despite the slowness of these families to follow God in obedience, there is no condemnation of them here. In verse 13, we even see the comment that the sons of Adonikam, in the ESV it's translated, those who came later, a better translation that is supported by most Hebrew scholars, those who came last. The meaning of that phrase is generally accepted to indicate that for this family, every last member had finally returned to Judah. A comment made about no other family. I am afraid judgmentalism and impatience in our day would prevent many from celebrating the return of these prodigals. Churches are filled with people who would be thinking, well, what took them so long? Or people who consider themselves superior because they were enlightened and they were obedient earlier. Our judgmentalism and our legalism, we have forgotten the joy over the one who returns. We have forgotten Luke 15, 7, where Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's easy to hold a grudge. 
But the Spirit through Paul tells the Corinthian church, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Talking about a man who had created division and difficulty in that church. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. If you're copying down the reference, that's 2 Corinthians 2, 7 and following. True, Matthew 18, 15 and following is given to us by Jesus to work out disputes where one member of the church has sinned against another. But immediately following that instruction, in verse 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. As this church begins today, I pray we will all work together in love, forgiving one another when necessary. And in that spirit to rejoice with one another and encourage one another when we see God glorified in each other's actions or attitudes. As God brings more and more people to this congregation, as He may well do, that we will welcome them with joy. Real joy. To bear with their errors with patience as we work as a church and pray in the Spirit to bring them to maturity. No baby runs a marathon. No infant builds a house. But the ones who do such things all began in the same way. As babies who grew and developed and made mistakes and corrected errors and became mature. Let this be our prayer for each other from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That should be our prayer for one another. That should be the work of the church on behalf of one another. Let's pray. Our Father, let us not look at others who were late in returning to You and make any note of their lateness. Let us celebrate their repentance. Let us celebrate their obedience. And let us welcome them with open arms, with open hearts, and with joy that begins in heaven and comes in through Your Spirit, through us. 
let us feel the joy of seeing sinners brought to you, brought to repentance, brought to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have a place in that awesome responsibility that you have called us to be the disciple makers in this world. I pray that we would encourage each other to be that very thing. It is in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.